Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberty's and the host of this podcast on which I talk with our writers and the larger Liberty circle about whatever is on our minds. On this episode of the podcast, Leon and I talk with Ben Moser about Rembrandt and the nature of evil. This essay that you had for us in the most recent issue of Liberties is called The Shadow Master. Um, and it's it's one in a series that you're doing for your book, which is coming out in September, right? Yeah, it's actually moved to October. But yeah, it's called The Upside Down World, Meetings with the Dutch Masters. And it's 20 years of my looking at these pictures and thinking about them and taking people like you around the Dutch museums. So, well, we know you've published on Rembrandt and Halls and our pages. Who are the other, what are the other chapters of the book? Who, who are you choosing? So I, I hope you're not going to make me name them all because I'll forget somebody. Well, it's, I'll tell you basically, it's the genealogy that goes from Rembrandt to Vermeer. And then that's part one. So that's Rembrandt and his students mm-hmm. leading to Vermeer. Oh. Bowl, Flink, Fabricius, Vermeer. I think I'm missing somebody. And then it's um, about uh, the the genre painters that come out of Vermeer. So the genre painters are the people who paint kind of regular folks doing something. Doesn't necessarily matter what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be getting a letter or you can just be sitting there where previously you would have had to have some sort of religious theme or some historical or mythological theme. Some symbolism, uh, yeah, yeah. Something. And it drives people crazy. It's hilarious to read the old um, art history because nobody who has a classical training in art is going to let the letter just be a letter or the cigar just be a cigar, you know? So um, so that's a section called the picture about anything. Um, and that include, and then there's a chapter about the other genres like, like landscape and portraiture and blah, blah, blah. And then it leads into the end of the golden age and the late um, the painters of the beginning of the 18th century who bring the old tradition into a world where Holland is not as important. Um, it's still quite rich, actually. People forget, you know, they think it all ended, except Holland has always mm-hmm. been one of the most economically advanced parts of the world. Um, and but it changed. It didn't have the towering geniuses. It didn't have the Halls and the Rembrandts and the Vermeers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it becomes something else. So sounds like the I'm especially taken by what you said about the overinterpretation of genre pictures, because um, it would be a, a really interesting study in the problem of overinterpretation and the need for symbolism. People really need it. Like, especially if you went yeah. to all the trouble to get a PhD in art history, you really don't want the cigar just to be a cigar. And there's a hilarious um, history of the history, you know, historiography, right. which is how people kind of give up at a certain point. And something I'm reacting to in the book also is this idea that it's all about money. Because that's, of course, what Americans sort of felt comfortable thinking. So they would go through the room and they'd be like, oh, you know, that that silver fork cost 800 guilders, yeah. whereas an average longshoreman only made 45 guilders, you know, and it, it goes on. And I think the climax of this in a way is Simon Shama's right. book, Embarrassment of Riches, which it's not untrue. I mean, of course, the Dutch were a bourgeois people, um, 
which made them seem very comprehensible to the British and the Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, to the current generations of the Dutch who feel like, oh, they're all consumers just like us. But right. if you look at it that way, you miss, um, first of all, it's just boring, right? To think, oh, like I wonder how much for scarf costs. You miss the poetry. I mean, there are a lot of things that a picture can mean without being a symbol of something. But this, I try to put this in my book. It's very revolutionary. It's very much something that demanded a great human jump in, in, in how you look at the world. Mm -hmm. um, it's, very, it's very new. And I think that the funny thing about Dutch painting is that it looks kind of familiar. You kind of think you know what you're looking at. Whereas like if you go to Cambodia, you think, I don't know what the hell this is, you know, unless you're Cambodian. Mm -hmm. you, you, but, but you know, you see like a lady in a shop or, or a couple talking to each other or a tree in a field, you feel pretty confident that you know what that is. And in fact, um, as I try to show, um, the more you learn about these paintings, the less you actually understand about them and the more you realize that world is quite mysterious. So that's kind of why the title is the Upside Down World also, because it's something that um, you think you're here and you're actually here. And that's also a metaphor for my own leaving my own country and moving to Holland 20 plus years ago. Right. You write about, in, in your essay for us about Rembrandt, you write about being able to discover surprising things in his paintings that are kind of human and they're not the thing that people say the painting is about. Like the one right. that, like the one of him and the crowd of people, what are they, what are they going to like, Murder the stoning of Saint Stephen. Yeah, Saint Stephen, yeah. and Rembrandt's put himself in the crowd, which is disarming for somebody who is taught trained to look at the painting and see a particular scene, and then you discover the artist inside of it. You know, for for readings of symbol, it's true that for many paintings or for some paintings, there's symbolism that the that the painter intended to put in there, but then there's the symbolism that is less obvious, but that the thing you were trained to see keeps you from seeing this other thing that is also quite illuminating mm -hmm. about the artist. Well, and this is a real contribution of art histories. You know, I mean, if you looked at that painting, you would actually instantly recognize the scene. And I'm sure you know where it is in Jerusalem. It's still, you can still, there's the French monastery where they have the scene of the, the St. Stephen proto-martyr, you know, the first well, there of is, the Christian. There's a, there is a St. Stephen's gate is the, um, is the gate at the top of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And yeah, but if you walk out the Damascus Gate and kind of take a right and walk about 100 meters, you'll find the, the scene, and it's still a French monastery. Um, and so he's the first martyr. So, I mean, this is a very obvious scene for a Christian painter from or, 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 or sculptor or whatever uh, to take on. But you wouldn't actually see Rembrandt there unless all these people, and this is what's really interesting because art history is fascinatingly boring. Um, it's the most boring writing about the most interesting subject of anything I... Yeah. Right, like if you're interested in Russian history, you're interested in like, you know, the history of mathematics or I don't know, there's all this really interesting writing about it. And it's sort of surprising that there's not that much interesting writing about art. But it's so technical and it's fascinating how art, unlike literature, um, I just got a gift. It's a strange gift, actually. I don't know if I told you about it, Celeste. It comes from your part of the world. 
uh, it comes from uh, Swarthmore, uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. I think you did. did I tell you about this? That's, uh, you told me about the man, I think, who sent it to you. I think you did tell me. Yeah. yeah, so I've been getting these this gift of hundreds and hundreds of German books from the 17th century on. Um, yeah. And you realize how much, like a huge bestseller from the 19th century, the 18th century, it's totally unreadable. And these are books that would have sold millions of copies and everybody who spoke German would have read. Hmm. So that's really different. Like literature ages faster in a way than, than visual art. You think that like, oh, that's a picture of, you know, a guy getting stoned and, and that must be Christ and that must be St. Stephen or, you know, I guess Christ isn't in it, but it must be St. Stephen. Yeah. And um, you think you know what it's about, but like when the art historians really start digging into it and peeling it back, you find a lot more that you wouldn't recognize. And right. so for well, example, one, you wouldn't... one of the, there are advantages and disadvantages to the, the changing uh, cultural and iconographical frameworks that happen over time. So for example, people who looked at pictures based on incidents in Tasso, right? right. Um, they, I, in their time, they might've recognized this as an illustration of a passage in a book, or at least- Right, or Shakespeare. A highbrow yeah. people, yeah. Right. But, and this certainly goes without, this goes without saying, um, Christian symbolism at one point was a common vocabulary. Yeah. And now we have the problem of not being able to read that. It's not legible to us without doing some homework. On the right. other hand, we can we see the humanity of the scene yeah. and we can see the, the painterly aspects of the scene. Even yeah, you can look at it for the colors. You can look at it for the... Uh, right. Whatever. Even for the financial value, you can say a Rembrandt, that's worth a lot of money. You can see something that people in the there's 17th something, century. There's sort of an interpretive advantage that secular people may have when looking at religious pictures, for example. Right. Because it it, it opens your eyes to things that, uh, that people in its time may not have noted. It makes it true. Well, it's true. But it's funny. I, I write this somewhere in the book that I used to love Chinese calligraphy, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, it's extreme, or Asian calligraphy, Japanese too. It's very beautiful. Um, and it's, it's very dramatic. Really and it's, fun, it's fun to look at, but the thing is, it actually does mean something. Really? And so if you right. don't know Chinese and you right. think, wow, that's really beautiful. I mean, it might say hack off the heads of the infidels or something. Um, you don't know. And so the, the, I think that's kind of the history of history of art history is the way that meanings kind of come and go and they, they get layered on and they get stripped away and then they get changed. And um, I don't know, I'm, I, I'm just trying to find something new to say about an old subject, which is um, pouring old wine into new casks. And I hope that it's interesting to people. Um, I think that whenever somebody is somebody as knowledgeable as you certainly but whenever somebody is excited by by an artist like Rembrandt he's so um like lacquered over in interpretation right. and scholarship it's really difficult for somebody who like a layman who is not well versed in art history and who doesn't really know how to look at paintings 
it's exciting to find what somebody like you finds exciting about Rembrandt because it teaches them how to look at him and it makes him accessible, which I guess is a dirty word, but it's a, it is a service. Well, I wanted to be, so I came to a country where I knew not very much about anything um, when I was in my early 20s and um, or mid 20s. And that was my way of getting into this culture that was sort of daunting to me. And the fact of being a foreigner was daunting to me. But also um, what you're saying really reminds me of my last book, you know, about Susan Sontag. And it's hard to know, Leon knows this, but I think it's hard for younger people to know how thick these interpretations were layered on everything. And the two main interpretation or interpretive systems, you know, probably until the 70s, till the 80s maybe, were Freud and Marx. And the, the promise of those systems was that if you really understood Freud, you could understand everything about everything. You, know, you could understand sexuality and death and love and religion and, and politics and psychology. What? The key to all mythologies. The key to all mythologies. And that's, you know, like Susan Sontag's essay against interpretation was so threatening in a way that I think people now, they don't know shit from Shinola, so nobody really thinks, oh gosh, you know. Shit from Shinola, that's good. Yeah, you know, like people don't, people aren't, they're not only not burdened by it, I don't even think they're aware it exists, you know. I mean, this is what I hear okay. from Sidney Morgan Besser used to refer to these people, to the over-interpreters as Herman Nudniks. <laughs> and it's a great term. And there is, um, the truth is, I'm not sure it is possible to be human and live without interpretation. I mean, it's, I think that may be in some, in some sense, you know, philosophers call us, certain, certain philosophers, their, their definitional name for us is self-interpreting beings. And when, yeah. and when we look at imagery, movies, streets, whatever, uh, I'm not sure we can live without interpretation. The question then becomes um, the varieties of interpretation and which interpretation goes where. Right. Yeah. Well, that's something that was really misunderstood about Sontag's writing, because, you know, people read the title and they don't really get much further than that. Wow. She had catchy titles. So against interpretation, um, it's not, I mean, it's a very specific kind of interpretation and it's a kind yeah. of interpretation that makes everything be something else. A book I just translated that's actually coming out in the fall also, I think the same day. I kind of have to, I'm kind of worried about dividing my um, attention, but it's clearly Suspector's Apple in the Dark. And the Apple in the Dark, the idea of that metaphor is that um, it's a it's a it's a kind of golem story, as I've written about somewhere else. But um, it's a it's a man being created from the dirt, and oh. the idea is that um, and kind of becomes this automaton, and then gradually becomes an animal, and then he becomes a man. And the apple in the dark is a, a reference to a scene where he grabs an apple with his hand. And the only reality and the only meaning the apple has for him is the meaning it has for the hand. So mm -hmm. it's just something that's not intellectual. It's not, mm -hmm. there's no blah, blah, blah. It's just a sensation. And this is something that really was, um, well, I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons why Sondheim was considered a liberatory figure. But for me, it was just about taking on board this huge bibliography, which I've done for years, just reading and reading and reading about art. 
Dutch art, and then trying to come up with something new to say about it that would be, I don't know, you know, an invitation to people to come think for themselves, but also to do what Sontag said and try to experience it. It's unburdened. Not like a total moron, you know, not just the apple in the dark, but, but to make it more sensual, to make it more alive. Well, if, if you communicate, for example, as I'm sure you will, the truly revolutionary nature of depicting ordinary human life. I mean, and you know, it's still sometimes shocking to me when you see some of these gorgeous little pictures and all of this mastery, all of this artistic yeah. mastery has been consecrated to what since the beginning of representational painting was regarded as almost not worth depicting. And people really didn't see it. It's not that they had some principled objection to it. They just, it didn't occur to them to be a subject. And this is something that, mm -hmm. you know, photography later discovers mm -hmm. how much stuff there is you can make a beautiful picture of mm -hmm. that it's really fun. I mean, but it does, what I think is interesting about the exercise is trying to make things magical again. I mean, the fact that here we are looking at each other, you're in Washington, I'm in France, here we are talking to each other. We don't really think about that anymore. Only a few years ago, I remember watching this show, I think it was like 60 Minutes or something, about this new video camera, and it had Pakistani immigrants somewhere in, I don't know, Queens or somewhere, and they could actually call their relatives they hadn't seen in 62 years back in Karachi, and they could see each other. And these people were, this was like 10 years ago. This was not 500 years ago. And they were crying. They couldn't believe it. They were so overwhelmed by being able to see each other. So I think that, you know, science and art and language moves very fast. And so it's hard to remember, like, that we're talking to each other. That's magical. And that's really fabulous. And it's something that none of us, I mean, Colette, uh, I was going to say, Celeste, you know, you're a lot younger than I am. And I'm younger than Leon. But none of us grew up with that. Right. You know, it's so new, but we forgot about it. Yeah, I remember being in the living room um, on the, the first time I ever had a video chat with a friend. I was talking to my computer and my, my dad walked by me and could not figure out. He was, he was like, why are you talking to your computer? That's so busy. He thought there was something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. I had to like <laughs> what it was. But yeah, Ben, I think you do do this in your essay for us. Oh, damn. Um, oh my God, we only have 10 minutes left because I don't have, fuck. Oh. God damn it. I, all right, I'll, I'll have to edit two videos together and we'll have to start a new well, Let's talk about Rembrandt. No, we can't. We have 10 minutes. Oh, okay. I mean, so what, then can we do a second we'll one? Have right to do, we'll have to just do a second one. But I'm going to ask you this question and you'll answer it and then we'll start. And then again. we'll set up another Zoom for Okay, another. totally fine. Ridiculous. So I, we, we told you it would take about seven hours. So it's just. That's like, what I figured. In yeah. your essay for us about Rembrandt, you do do this. You you say, and he's a very difficult figure to try and have a kind of unmediated relationship with because he's such a giant. And also because his, his body of work is so enormous and so different across his whole career. So it's really hard to say who Rembrandt was or to kind of essentialize him because he painted so many different kinds of things and in so many different kinds of ways. Um, but even though, even so, and you say that, you still manage to make him human in a way that I found kind of emancipatory. And 
that's what like she calls it against interpretation you are interpreting you're but you're yeah. interpreting you're not using somebody else's interpretation you're not burdened by you know the reams of scholarship that are telling you how to understand Rembrandt you're just looking at a painting and having kind of visceral response to it you know writing about Rembrandt's darkness um, and about the theme of evil that recurs to throughout his oeuvre in different ways but it's a it's one of the constants um it's it's difficult for somebody who is not as self-confident and as you are and doesn't have as much of the entire body of work like in their minds the way that you do to be able to do that because it's intimidating um but you do it really well, i guess that confidence comes from knowing that i've read all those damn books yeah I think that's true yeah. you had to read that stuff first and you know that's it's obvious Sontag could not have written that essay if she hadn't read everything that she had read she had to right. be right. I mean I think yeah. uh, I mean Rembrandt is a special challenge in this regard because as you know Rembrandt has been so overwritten about I mean I used to keep a little collection of weird books about Rembrandt like Rembrandt's nose is the name of one of them and then, of course Rembrandt's mother but that those are great pictures but still Rembrandt's mother and then there's Rembrandt's Jesus and then there's Rembrandt's you know it's he's been so taken apart that it's almost like trying to hear Beethoven's Fifth Symphony again yeah I mean you really it's be hard amazed. and you know I live in Holland I live uh, in Holland where can you hear me yeah 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 Oh, I live in Holland where everywhere, right. like every few years, they have to have another Rembrandt show. That's right. Like they've had like Rembrandt's elephant. There was an elephant that he sketched or, you know, I mean, everything. And it's kind of interesting, but it does make it hard to, it makes it hard to say anything general about him. So I was trying to talk about the question of evil, what you really see, um, or at least what I, what started gathering and catching my attention over the years was just how much really aggressively violent imagery there is in these paintings. And you don't see it anywhere else. Um, it's really wrenching. I mean, to see these kind of things is, um, is kind of shocking. You, you, we're used to that though, again, like we're used to depictions of violence and pain, uh, probably too used to it under some, some might argue, including the young Susan Sontag. But um, but it is shocking, and it does raise this question: like, why him? And um, well, Ben, one of the reasons it's shocking, I mean, you know, there's a big show of, of, of a retrospective of Carpaccio here at the yeah. National Gallery, which is an amazing you show. Just for that, Ben. And one of the things you see again when you go through that show is the extent to which Christian painting. Uh, which consists substantially about uh, uh, pictures of martyrdoms, is a long chronicle of very graphic violence. I mean, but you know, see, what happened is that with the Reformation, um, so Rembrandt's born in 1606. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, getting on to a century after Martin Luther, but not in the Netherlands because there were wars and it was a obviously a long road to Protestantism, but um, sorry, I have something in my eye. there was no tradition at all in the Protestant North of that. They got rid of all that. Right. And it was, I thought it was um, 
you know, we might dismiss it as kitsch, but they had a much more religious objection to it, a much more spiritualized objection to it. And so... Sometimes um, I think that secular people call a painting kitsch only because they don't believe in what it depicts. I mean, you know, yeah, there, there is, course. when believers look at, I mean, kitsch, religious kitsch is in fact a sign that the religion lives, that there are living believers still around. Well, I remember once um, when I was in Haiti and you see Haitian art, mm -hmm. which is really fascinating and where there's a lot of it. And um, considering how incredibly poor the country is, I don't know if you've ever been there, but certainly not time to go now. But um, it's actually kind of unbelievable how much art there is. And it's really, it's almost all, there's a few exceptions, but it's almost all produced by completely unschooled people, but who are completely um, absorbed in the religious mindset of their community and their world. And they believe it and they don't have any money. So it's not like Raphael painting the 16 child, you know, the apartments yeah. in the Vatican. It, there's no intellectual thing. It's just this very raw thing. And, and it's terrifying. You really, you know, you say you're going to hell, like you're going to hell. Like there's not, it's not an expression. And um, yeah, it's, it's not a metaphor. Genuine faith. Yeah. And, you know, so Rembrandt is this very strange combination of an extremely intellectualized and highly educated and very modern you know as we would understand the term person a rational person um who nonetheless has this very electric connection to irrationality and to violence and to the whole apparatus of um human and and animal suffering as well and it's very um when you start noticing it, you can't really look away, at least. But, you know, that was the angle I wanted to write about because I was interested in um, evil. And um, it's a concept that I think is hard to, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Do you think it's a hard concept to understand without a religious framework, evil? Oh, I think that... Um... No, I mean, the depiction of violence is always, I don't want to say easy to understand, it's its legible to us because um, violence cuts across all the, all the lines between secular and religious. And, but evil is not the same as violence. Well, right, but I thought he was asking about violence. No, he said, do you think evil? Well, no, I'm really asking about evil. I just watched this show on Netflix about this serial killer. Sorry, I still have this thing in my eye. Um, and you know the serial killer takes place in Ireland. You just know the serial killer was abused by priests, right? Right, right. So you always have to have, this is like against interpretation, and you have to have some, or Freud again, you have to have some explanation, like, you know, your mother wasn't always around or something, yeah. something simple, but, you, but, but just the fact of evil, I'm actually the fact of cruelty. What? I'm writing about this. It's, this is going to stop in a second. I'm right. But but I'm writing about this about about a character who is purely evil and not because of anything that was done to her. She was born this way, and yes. it's a kind of deformity. Um, I'm writing about Kathy Ames. You've read East of Eden. Not lately. So it she's. I used to taste great. What? 
Oh, but not since eighth grade. But it, it's it deserves to be read not just by eighth graders. It's it's not right. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but she's she's a character who is evil from birth, and he yeah. just her like the way that he the way that he introduces her is by saying that there are monsters born to human parents, and he goes on to explain that if there can be physical deformities that mark a person for life there can also be soul deformities that make a person yeah. unhuman but you can't see it and she's like that and she does she does evil to other people because she doesn't have she's not formed in the same way that other people are i think that if you're going to think about the the question of evil it will be very different if you have a religious framework than if you don't have a religious framework right. i think you can do that one but i think it's it's really going to be, you're going to be talking about two different things because a religious person believes that you're going to be punished. And this is I think the big difference. Yeah, I think that's the big difference. But there's also, it's not just the punishment aspect, it's the explanation aspect. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read Andrew Solomon's book, Far From the Tree, yeah. um, about children. It's an interesting book. I mean, it's a it's a case study book of kind of New Yorker style profiles of people who have kids who are murderers or who are, um, have learning disabilities or you know who are just they're born some something else. Um, oh. Even children who are homosexual or who are whatever. There's all sorts of different ways that you can be born that are not the way you're supposed to be born according to your parents and your society, and. Um, but the question of evil, um, it's a horrible question because it does exist. Um, and it is something that you can psychologize or, or, or turn into a religious question. Um, and I think you probably have to because otherwise it's, uh, it's quite horrible to contemplate how many people have that capacity. Some people are really born evil. I think that's probably true. But most people have a capacity for evil inside them. Yeah. I mean, when you see it in a Rembrandt painting, I guess the subtext is that the evil will be punished. And so it's kind of a warning to the evil person. But if you see... I don't think he's warning you, really. I mean, there are some... I mean, when you look at the, the, the flayed ox, which is probably my favorite example of this... Um, you have, there's no punishment there. And it's a crucifixion, but there's no resurrection either. And mm -hmm. um, it's something really, really shocking that people don't want to look at. And um, you force it to look at it. I mean, some of those paintings are really horrible to look at. Yeah. Yeah, you write about that really beautifully in the essay. I mean, there is no difference between religious and secular people in the sense that Every time somebody suffers, the first question they unfortunately ask is, what did I do to deserve this, to quote the Pet Shop Boys? Um, and, you know, and Susan actually wrote about this when she got cancer in her illness as metaphor in her essay. And in the case of religious people, the question is coherent because they're living in a, a framework of reward and punishment. Right. In the case of secular people, uh, it's more painful. Isn't it residual? Well, it's, I think it's, it's the, it may be a human, 
a psychological reflex to think yeah. that if something bad happens to you that you're being punished it may go it may go back to childhood right oh, i mean okay. it may go back to childhood i thought it was like and religious no no and then you plug in the cosmology of the of the system of what they call the moralized cosmos of reward and punishment in which every etc but well, even that's a great question that you know this is the great question for me that Clarissa Spector writes and writes in her work, which is um, how do you take a kind of religious vocation into a secular world? And I mean, she she survives not the Holocaust, but a previous Holocaust, which was the pogroms of the, that followed the mm -hmm. First World War. And those people um, found religious explanations preposterous and offensive and stupid. Mm. And they looked down on them. They, they despise a lot of religion. They wouldn't use words as scornful as the ones that you used. But if you look at ultra-Orthodox and Haredi writing yeah. about the Holocaust, uh. except for the really grotesque and therefore interesting writers who really sincerely do believe that it was a punishment for either Zionism or socialism or secularization, right. they really do think that it, it and it, they read it, right. it, it, it reads perfectly to them. But yeah. the really smart and sensitive ones recognize what, pre, what earlier generations, even in the Middle Ages, saw, which is that whatever they were guilty of, it could not have been so bad that it merited what befell them that there was something, let's just say, excessive about this. Secondly, they knew, certainly the religious ones, that they were keeping good religious lives. They knew right. this. And thirdly, there is, problem, there is the problem upon which the whole, and the whole um, enterprise of theodicy is wrecked, which is the suffering of children. Right, throwing two-year-olds into an oven is hard to justify yeah. underneath. Cosmology. Children are morally regarded as minors. They have no ledger of their own. They have no moral accountability. So, which is the premise of the reward and punishment system? Right. Um, well, someone like Tadisi would have thought that that whole idea of reward and punishment is is totally ridiculous. That all you have to do is look around and you see terrible people getting rewarded and good people getting well, punished. That's, that's, the, uh, that's what the Odyssey is: the righteous right. suffer and the wicked prosper. They're also so I. Like inverting it, there were a lot of people after the Holocaust who believed that the only people who survived were people who were capable of evil. Yeah, Didn't which is terrible. He once said, Sholem no, once said that to me, but that was a very common attitude and it was really repulsive. Well, you do yeah. want an explanation. I think the point is the thing that brings these together, and the things that brings us together with, with Rembrandt is that, and with Spinoza incidentally as well, is that. Mm -hmm you do want an explanation. I mean, the world is irrational and we are rational people. And so we try to impose our will on the world and we try to rationalize things that are not rational, including ourselves to start with. We give ourselves names. We call each other Celeste or Leon, and, you know, but actually we're just a bunch of nerve endings and blood and sperm. And speak for yourself, rat. I know, except for you, but others of us. And it's <laughs> something... You. No, but it's true because when you have a kind of, when you try to impose morality onto the world, um, you're either going to become 
a religious fanatic, or you're going to just become a very disappointed person because um, anybody who is not a child realizes that it's irrational. But so how do you translate that irrationality into something visual? How do you but show wait, that? Let's not erase, and we'll get back to Rembrandt sometime this week, but, um, but let's not erase the reality that we do have the power, and you can call it the freedom of the will or not, whatever, whichever philosopher you would want to pick. We do have the power to make other people suffer. Yes. In other words, there yeah. are crimes that we commit against other people, and we believe that those crimes should be punished because yes. we are accountable for them, and God has nothing to do with it. Right, we it believe that human society should be the crimes. Yeah, right. So right. whatever authority there is that, that we should be answerable in some way. The real problem, of course, you, it gets funky with, of course, the suffering of children, but also with natural disasters. I mean, you know the literature on the, on the earthquake of Lisbon, which is yeah. sort of where all this starts. What was that, 1754, something 42, like that? 42, I think. Um, yeah. My, and, my, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, how can is, a whole city of people just walking around and going shopping and taking care of their kids and whatever just get wiped out? Um, right. And, and this is no the same. On, on human freedom. This is what's fascinating is that this question, uh, people, I think, do rationally know that this has happened historically. We know about the Holocaust. We know about natural disasters. We know about all sorts of horrible diseases that strike people. What? But you, Celeste doesn't know. But um, is that what you said? Oh, okay. So, but like, there's a real sort of challenge in terms of, I think it is so shocking that when something like that happens, you you have to recreate this whole way towards the divine. I think that might be the way to put it. Is so that, that you can, that you can blame it? Yes. No, 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 no. I think it's something different. I'm saying so. You're you know all your commandments, and you did the this, and you put the mazes on the door, and you put your you know you tied your magical knot around your whatever, all that kind of stuff. Okay, that didn't work. Right. Right. It just failed. That didn't work. But the fact is that people do, not all people, but certain people, uh, whether they're mystics or they're artists, usually, um, do feel a kind of need to reach the divine. So in Rembrandt's case, you have this old religious system, which was the system of Catholicism or, you know, what was Christianity until a week or so ago, is gone. You know, that, that explanation is no longer available. So how do you, um, how do you portray the extremes? Head over to libertiesjournal.com to read Ben Moser's essay, The Shadow Master, and find out how Rembrandt answered that question. If you are a subscriber, you will be able to read the entirety of that issue and all others on our website. If you are not yet a subscriber, go to libertiesjournal.com to correct that condition.